0: Welcome to Mind Love, episode 60. Today's episode is all about revelations of self through relationships and experience.
1: We're in training, Melissa. We are. We don't know it. We think this life is a race to win, to come out on top. It's not. It's a school for our spiritual education. The most valuable moments in my life, in yours and everyone else's, have been the moments where we finally learned something that made us. A truer, kinder, more patient human being, whatever that took. And we know that what it took was a lesson that had to come around and around and around in about 500 forms before we finally realized okay, I get it. The issue is something I haven't seen about myself a dependency, a fear, a loneliness.
0: Turn up your frequency with mind love light sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Please stop what you're doing and hit the subscribe button. More subscribers means even better guests and even more value. Plus, it helps grow the show so more people can find it. And if you ask me, everyone can use a little more mind love. And if you need another reason, I would really appreciate it. Hi, friends. I have been doing a lot of reflecting the last few weeks the new year and i have this process of reviewing, reflecting and renewing. So, reviewing, noting my progress and my wins for the year, reflecting what i did well, what worked, what i could have done better, and then renewing, making commitments to myself and setting goals and all of that. Through it all, i couldn't help but come back to my relationship. babe, i hope you're listening. Actually, I know you're listening because you are supportive as of. But I realize that I believe it would have taken me so much longer to get to where I am if I weren't with my hubby. I view my life as this roller coaster, which I'm sure a lot of us do. But sometimes I'd climb, but then I'd plummet. Then I'd climb a little more and I'd fall back a little bit. And the falls have gotten a little less deep over time. It's just minor setbacks, and I'm sure that'll always be the case. But really, since I met my hubby, it's been this exponential incline, mostly up instead of mostly down. So because of that, I do have really high standards of what I think a healthy relationship should be. I just want everyone to find their person, and not a person that's an addictive spiral, but one that feels safe one that feels like home, one that's their rock that they can always come back to. Well, beyond that, there are other relationships. There are family dynamics, there are friendships that always seem to be coming together and falling away, and then there's that dynamic between two partners. But all of these relationships are so important. They show us parts of ourselves that we couldn't have discovered on our own, even the bad ones. Well, because It seems as though everyone around me is having some sort of a relationship struggle. I wanted to do a little series. So this week and next week will be about relationships, but in different ways. If you're not in a relationship, don't worry, because this is not just about being in a couple or a triad or poly or whatever tickles your soft parts. (laughs) It's about how we learn and grow from our interactions from other sentient beings. So today we're talking to spiritual teacher Guy Finley. He's really well known and he's been teaching and writing about spiritual principles since the early 90s. What I love about him is that his teachings draw from a lot of different spiritual traditions and philosophies, including Eastern philosophies, Fourth Way, Jungian psychology, and even Christian mysticism. I absolutely loved this interview, and I could have talked to him for hours. He just has so much wisdom, and we did. We, we definitely branched beyond the relationship topic, but three key things we will learn are where our longing comes from, how to create a healthy dynamic in all your relationships, and what to do if you're the only one willing to do the work. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning Mind Love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power. So you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. Plus you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless, based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the miracle tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 444-999. That's MORNING to 444-999. And now let's welcome Guy Finley to the show.
1: Thank you, Melissa.
0: So first of all, I know we're going back quite a while here, but how did you originally become a spiritual teacher?
1: I don't have a clue. (laughs) Oh, Melissa, my life story is really a series of stories in a way. I feel like I've been reborn about seven times in a single life. And to my good fortune, but not for reasons that people would suspect, I was born into a very successful show business family. My father was really the late night television talk show pioneer. Long before names that you wouldn't even recognize anymore, he actually invented the genre. And so when I was a boy, I was born in 1949, I'll be 70 very, very shortly. My pals were the children of all the big celebrities of the day uh, Desi and Lucy Arnaz, the Martins, the Minnelli's, the Sinatra's. I mean, they were my pals. And I grew up like that. And I, was attracted, I suppose, at a very early age, and I don't know if it was because of that or not. I wanted to understand why when everyone had so much as we did, everybody was so uh, dysfunctional, in a word. A lot of anger, a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, my own parents included, to get up and get through the day and then go to sleep and then get up and do it again. And as a child, you don't really see that. You can't understand why would my father drink and then take drugs to go to sleep, and then have a doctor come in the morning and give him a shot to get him going, which is a lot more typical in that world than we would imagine. But for me, I had no way to put it together. So around the age of I don't know nine or ten years old, I started writing. Spiritual things unfolded from there. In my teens, uh, my partner and I, himself the son of a celebrity couple, uh, were the first white soft rock artist ever to sign with Motown Records, and we had a very successful career. I wrote music for motion pictures, television, but by the time I hit 27, Home in Malibu, Horses, The Whole Nine Yards, I'd burned out. I loved music, but I became a slave to the system that demanded of me what it did so that I could keep everything in place. And then so when it turns out that you're a slave to keep in place your freedom, something's wrong. I quit the music business, I don't know, 28, 29 years old, started traveling around the world, see if anyone anywhere could make sense for me of this great disparity, this disconnection between what should be absolute happiness based in success as the world sees it and my suffering and my pain as a result of not finding what I thought was waiting for me on the other side of the hill. And so basically that's it. I came back from my trip wiser, sadder, because I didn't find anyone to make any changes in me. I don't know if you know this, but in the 60s and 70s, the great spiritual cycle was that you would go find a master, and ideally he would or she would give you a shakti they touch you on the forehead, open you up, or you would dust their feet with your forehead, which I did so many times I have a callus where my third eye should be. I mean, all of this stuff, and it changes nothing. Not that there aren't people that I didn't meet who had power, But power is not the same thing as being able to perceive what's real and being changed as a result of it. And basically, that's it. I came home. A year later, I met a great man of all places right here in the United States, actually a Christian mystic, an enlightened man. I spent 14 years working very close with him till he died. And then with his blessing and instruction, I set out to do what I am doing. He told me to write my best-selling book, The Secret of Letting Go, which I did. And the rest, so they say, is history. And that is sort of a small, long and boring nutshell of how this nut is talking to you the way he is.
0: (laughs) Well, first, I kind of got caught up on Christian mystic, because from what I was taught in church, Mysticism almost opposes Christianity. So, what exactly is a Christian mystic?
1: The word mystic means the one who perceives what is true. And if, as it is said by Christ, you know the truth and the truth will set you free, then the more that I know about myself in this world, as I am introduced to all of the relationships that events make possible, then in revelation, which is what the events represent, I become a self-realized man. And by self-realized, I don't mean a man apart from Christ, not a man apart from God, but a man who finds his life in God, in Christ. Because only through the kind of revelation where a person begins to understand, In this instance, for instance, why Christ said, Woman, why do you call me good? No one is good save the Father. Well, in this day and age, who understands that? Everybody's out trying to become good in the eyes of everyone else so that for their appearance, they can seem to be successful. And what I learned is that success has nothing whatsoever to do with appearance. Success has something to do with being in the presence moment, in an awareness of oneself as one is being given the awareness of themselves so that the true light, the true conscience, can begin to separate the wheat from the chaff, so that we can become a different kind of human being based on revelation, and then releasing what is made evident by that light. Just doesn't work. It might have, but it doesn't anymore.
0: I've never heard the expression depot" before, but I like it and it's now in my vocabulary. <laughs> but I remember when I was 10 or 11, my dad used to take me to these evangelical churches where people would be speaking in tongues and lining up, being touched on the forehead and falling backwards the whole nine yards, just as you were saying. But I remember as a young kid being half in awe and just wishing I could be called up there and half just calling bullshit on the whole experience, even at that age. So, why do so many people line up for something like that for this immediate awakening? Some people must be experiencing something, right?
1: Oh, no, yeah. yeah.
2: there's no question about it. Actually, as a man who can kind of do that for people now,
1: it isn't that being in the presence or being momentarily. Quickened by Eastern tradition, Shakti, Western Holy Spirit. But the task is that what needs to change isn't just that moment. What needs to change is the whole of my nature. So through the Shakti pot, through the Holy Spirit, I might and do have a sudden awareness of something much superior to what I've called my life, more joy a bliss that's deeper than can be described, and by the way, none of it without cause. And you see, that's the rub for me. When a man or a woman becomes a disciple of a so-called teacher, then they become dependent on the teacher and what the teacher conveys. Instead of the teacher as he is intended or she is intended to do, awakening in the student the Holy Spirit, the, the truth itself, So that then they're no longer dependent on anyone or anything so that they can quantify it and then seek that again. They're loaned it as a way in which they can suddenly see, my consciousness runs a lot deeper than I knew, and now I must do the work to open myself up to that relationship with the Divine.
0: This actually makes sense to me because it's almost like this moment is allowing you to get a quick glimpse of what could be or what is possible before heading out on the long trek to actually getting there. Because otherwise, where would your motivation come from? Just this idea that's out in the ethers. Last week's episode was on mindset blocks and Amanda Crowell said that one of the first steps to actually making a change is believing that something is possible. So finding ways to show yourself, to find this evidence on your own that something could happen is the key to keeping your motivation to actually getting there. I feel like plant medicine was my Shakti pot. There were probably more things along with this, but this was a huge one because honestly, it was the first time that I really felt through my entire being that we are so much more than we think we are. Before, it was just this blind faith that I was raised with in a completely different way. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that my beliefs now are much different than my beliefs were growing up. But I still had this unending faith or more of a hope that there has to be something more. Otherwise, why are we even here? And the more I grew in my spiritual practice, the more I grew in my own self-development practice, even the more I firmly believed this to be true but the plant medicine was almost like proof for me. During yoga teacher training years ago, we watched a documentary, and it was actually on enlightenment, but there was a really heavy emphasis on psychedelics. And I'll never forget it because of the effect it had on me at the time, but there was this little adorable yogi woman, (laughs) much older than me, and she was sitting there in the lotus pose, and she calmly said that, after doing acid, she realized that there must be a way to get to this place without a substance. And first of all, it changed my view on acid. Before that, I, was, I just assumed what a lot of people without experience in that realm assume about any sort of drug. But that was the ignition to her spiritual journey. It's a quick pop into another frequency, another realm, or another dimension. And before you know it it's over and you're back in the real world and the journey is getting back to that place and that makes me think that maybe the idea of a gateway drug isn't such a bad thing after all say somebody is just starting to scratch the surface of discovering their own deeper consciousness i like to view it as peeling back the layers only It's never ending. There will always be another layer, no matter how far you go. But we're all so different. So step one will be different for each of us. How do you figure out what your own personal first layer is or where to start?
2: Well, you see, we run into a fundamental difficulty at that point. Because while I may have been hungry spiritually, my heart may
1: have as mine did for more years than I can tell you, felt mostly barren. I am, by my dissatisfaction, not my satisfaction, by my dissatisfaction, moved to seek something in this world that this world can't give me. If this world could give us what we need to be whole and happy human beings, we'd be populated with whole and happy human beings, and we're not. We're populated by a level of humanity that is virtually endlessly in pain, constantly seeking something to complete themselves, but without knowing it, seeking to complete themselves through the things, now listen, of the world that promise to make us perfect, not understanding the issue isn't that the things in and of themselves aren't beautiful. But the nature that's doing the seeking is apart from the divine and will always be so because it doesn't know it is a part of the divine. So these moments that you asked me about, where someone suddenly has an epiphany, a moment of grace, I'm opened up, I realize there's really something Extraordinary here. What do I do? That person has to remember they did not bring themselves to that moment. The divine did. The dissatisfaction of one's life, which is divinely seated, brought them there. The longing for love, which love put in us, brought us there. And if love, if the divine brings us to that point, where suddenly we get opened up a little bit, then why in the world do I think I'm responsible for stepping up to the next thing that's going to do it? I must follow what I love. I must be willing to see what love gives me to see about myself, because that's how I got there. And if I'll be honest and responsible, then I guarantee you that that kind of faith will produce the next understanding of the next level of freedom.
0: I love the way you worded that, and I think it needs to be repeated, that the nature that's doing the seeking is apart from the divine, because it doesn't know that it's a part of the divine. I don't know how many times I've heard everything you need is already inside of you, but at my lowest points, I was always like, well, you are mistaken because it feels pretty damn empty in there. (laughs) It's such a simple concept, but somehow... It's so hard to grasp because, again, most of us have never felt that kind of wholeness before. So the challenge is a kind of integration between the ego and that divinity running through all of us. And back in your time in the 60s and 70s, which I wish I lived in that time. For some reason, it's always held this dear place in my heart. But you mentioned this way of people seeking gurus. So, they'd do what you did and travel to India or live in an ashram. But now everything is just so accessible, whether it's YouTube or Uber Eats or Prime same day delivery or even bird scooters if you live in a city with those. So, I'm curious, how do you see that changing the way we seek? Should we as a people be worried? Or is this just our generation's version of that same old human longing?
1: No, it's the same need of longing. And it is being corrupted by the facility, the ease with which a person can momentarily satisfy the need to be real, the need to be a whole man, a whole woman, by looking online and getting a rush, a chill, a thrill out of seeing somebody post a picture of a hamburger. I mean, there is just virtually no end to the way in which we are momentarily completed now in the world, but as every addict knows, and everybody has been addict of some kind, the more you satisfy the need, the greater the need becomes. Not the more the need is satisfied, so that this momentary satisfaction of this longing, through an instant gratification of some kind, changes nothing, makes us more dependent, not less, and therefore more fearful, more anxious, and ultimately, as we see, more destructive to ourselves and the world as we become basically compulsive. I can't even discern anymore what I'm doing to myself and others in this need, which begins in a true place, to know the truth of myself.
0: Well, this corruption seems to just be the way our system works, or maybe it's just the way capitalism works, but it's creating these things to feed our addictions. But the people who have the power to change this are the ones that are profiting from it. So honestly, the situation doesn't seem very hopeful. And then the people that look deeper, the people that are raising concerns, are then being accused of being conspiracy theorists. It's like we're being gaslighted. It seems like there should be a morality officer or something at the top, but all the responsibility is put on the individual who seems to be the most powerless in the situation and the most manipulated.
1: There is no such thing as any real moral legislation. The fact that I have to legislate a law in order to control an addiction only sets the addiction firmer in place by producing resistance to the legislation so that instead of creating as we are intended to, you said something doesn't exist, it does exist. I am it. You are it. Each of us is the morality. Look, my new book, Relationship Magic, Is predicated on a very simple and yet deep idea that all of us are intended that you've just brought us to to start recognizing what is my life, its quality, its content, its experience, other than what is moment to moment being given to me to experience in the world that I'm in, so that literally. Every event, every moment produces a revelation of something in my consciousness I didn't know was there before. An example. And then we'll get to humanity. But for now, I look out the window and I see my girls, not my children, but I've been on this mountain for almost 30 years and I've hand raised about seven generations of deer. So. They come by to see if I'm out, and am I gonna give them a piece of tortilla chip or whatever? And when I see them go by, I know them by name, and I have a certain feeling that I didn't have until I saw them walk by. So that event produces in me an awareness of something in me that's sleeping until I see them. So the moment relationship. Produces a revelation of an aspect of my consciousness that I like. I love to see the girls. I love to see the madrone trees when they start shedding their bark. And instead of this dark bark, there's this sort of iridescent green underneath this, like baby, like flesh that hasn't been toughened up yet. And every one of these images that appear moment to moment to moment. Make out of me something moment to moment to moment I didn't know I had in me. And I love that because what? The revelation is a realization of something in me. And it isn't as if the thing that is stirring in me, what it does, is outside of me. Because if it was, I couldn't
2: feel it inside of me. So I discover me through the through the world now everybody
1: loves moments where we see the unbelievable sky you live in santa monica i'm a beach i'm a water dog when i die i want to die next to the water i love water why because when you're sitting there you're it's a it's a full body immersion sensory overload but more importantly a very deep spiritual realization that That ocean is out there and it's vast and it's moving. But I feel the vast moving of my own heart, of my own soul, reflected in the ocean.
0: Wow, you said that so beautifully. But it does seem to require getting in the habit of asking, what's in this for me? And that's been a huge focus for me this year because I found that I've always tried to live up to these standards. And half the time I don't even know where the standards come from. But even with what I do now, being in this mindfulness space, there are times when I'm just down or in a crappy mood and suddenly I feel like a hypocrite. Like just because I've decided to make this my lifestyle, I'm suddenly immune or exempt from human emotion. So lately I've been trying to approach Everything with curiosity and then gratitude. That's my formula. So curiosity because then you're opening your mind and asking what can be learned from this. And then gratitude because it immediately takes me out of victimhood or blame and reminds me that everything I experience or even just the things that come into my field of attention can be a mirror for my own consciousness or it can be for my highest good if I let it. Or just change my mindset about it. But relationships, coming back to your new book, are so much less passive about this. I feel like relationships are these mirrors that you can't step back from very easily. You don't have to ask. They're just going to show you.
1: (laughs) I've been married for almost 40 years. When we first meet, there's nothing that your partner does that bugs you. Right? I mean... Walk on water, basically, because physically, there's this strong, sexual, powerful connection. Emotionally, the tenderness, all of these qualities are there in the first stage of love. And we can't have enough of that. Why? Because the revelation produces a realization, and the realization is actually the completion of me. You really aren't completing me You are showing me that together there is something that we can have that is bigger than both of us, and that's what love is. But now the rub. First, you complete me, and then you begin to bug me. Now, the task to understand here is well, why did you completely? Because you showed me stuff about myself I didn't know, and I don't want to know. And that's why. I need to understand that about you and the world and everything else, because until I can become a different kind of man or woman, I'm going to blame the world. I'm going to blame its morality. I'm going to blame the hatred. I'm going to blame everything, judging it, believing that somehow because I can judge something makes me different than what I'm judging. When if we can see the truth of what I've just outlined, what I'm actually judging in someone that I don't like, I wouldn't even know not to like it if they hadn't stirred it in me. Because in judging you, I separate myself from the revelation that could release me from that false nature, but only when the concealed is finally revealed, and then the healing takes place. And that's the basis of my book, using all of our relationships, particularly with our partner, but not limited to that, so that we can begin to have these epiphanies where we start to
2: realize, you know what? The problem with you is my demand, not with what you're doing. Is what you're doing right or
1: wrong? That's not even important, although we're not talking about letting anybody abuse us. What's important is that you're a mirror, and in you I see myself. Mostly I love what I see when I start, because you bring out the best in me, but gradually you bring out the rest of me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's so true. But looking back on my relationships, now I'm able to see that it was there to teach me. But also, some were obviously meant to be temporary, but then others, like when I met my husband, feels like a life partner or a soulmate. He kind of feels like home in a way. So I'm wondering, how do we know if a relationship is meant to be fleeting, or if is that just a choice we're making? We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline. Or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney Show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash MindLove. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead So I'm wondering, how do we know if a relationship is meant to be fleeting? Or if is that just a choice we're making?
2: It's all education. We're in training, Melissa. We are. We don't know it. We think this life is a race to win, to come out on top. It's not.
1: It's a school for our spiritual education. It's a way in which, and everybody listening knows this is true. The most valuable moments in my life, in yours and everyone else's, have been the moments where we finally learned something that made us a truer, kinder, more patient human being, whatever that took. And we know that what it took was a lesson that had to come around and around and around in about 500 forms before we finally realized, okay, I get it. The issue is something I haven't seen about myself a dependency, a fear, a loneliness. And now I recognize that as long as that nature is active in me, it's going to attract to me what it needs to make itself happy, but it doesn't make me happy. And that's why there are these different kinds of relationships. But ultimately, they all serve the same purpose, which is to let go of what no longer is right and true serving us, in favor of something that showed that to us so that we can take the next step in our journey in being prepared for another kind of love.
0: Well, okay, as we know, relationships are mirrors. But in that moment that you're shown something, it's so much more difficult to see or perceive because you're clouded by these emotions and the ego takes over. For example, there's times that I'm getting annoyed with something that my husband does and I'll show that, but it's really nothing. And I know that deep down. It's the small self, as Paul Selig says, but emotional reactions can become a habit. And in my experience, when you create this negative dynamic between two people, it can be really hard to rebuild later. It's like you see them and it automatically triggers that thing inside of you. So how do you ensure that you're always creating a healthy dynamic between two people?
1: We all, Melissa, every last one of us, we're all imperfect. I can't get angry with my wife for her imperfection unless I'm perfect, period. Let you who are without sin cast the first stone. The teachings come We're alive ourselves and begin to see how they work in our lives. So that in this instance, what you're describing, and it's an important question, I'm sitting at home, my husband walks in, and he had a bad day at the supermarket. God help us, that that's a bad day. But for us, that is, you know, like, oh, the traffic was terrible. As I sat in my air-conditioned car, this is how far removed we are from reality. So he walks in, he's had a bum of a day, and he casts a glance at me. But I don't know that he's not looking at me. In his mind's eye, he's looking at what happened at the market.
2: He's reliving it. But I think he's looking at me with that look I've seen before. And by no, like again. Now, I have an instantaneous negative reaction,
1: don't I? And I have a negative reaction to what I believe is my husband's negativity. My husband's negativity wasn't because of me, although it may have been. But the thing that answers what you asked me is, can my husband get angry or be negative with me if he isn't in pain? Or is the fact that he's in pain producing the negativity?
0: He's in pain. He's in pain.
2: Now, remember what I said, a mirror? Mm -hmm. So he's in
1: pain. And suddenly, because I'm created to be able to do this. I feel his pain. But I don't know it's his pain I'm feeling because it's become
2: my pain. See? And now I'm in pain, and who do I have to blame for my pain? You.
1: And when I blame you for my pain because I'm in pain, what is he feeling? My pain. But he doesn't know it's my pain. He thinks it's his pain, and that's the issuance of a pattern that has no solution save for the ultimate and eventually futile compromise that men and women reach where they agree to disagree, so that the initial cause of the pain, which had nothing to do with either of you, really, just working as a mirror, goes back underground. And when it does, and everyone knows this, when it resurfaces, it's five times the beast because the issue was never healed because the part that was concealed never came to the surface for either of us to do the real work in that moment, which in this instance is to begin understanding, I have to stop
2: blaming you for my pain. I have to. Love doesn't blame. If anybody wants to argue that, I'll sit down
1: with them till the cows come home. Love has no enemies. Love never separates itself from anything. But when we're negative, we're blaming, we're separate, and we're holding on to something that only hurts us. Our task, Melissa, is to begin to use our relationships for exactly this revelation so that we begin to see ourselves as we are caught in a limited consciousness that blames its limitation on our partner.
0: So when you do find yourself in one of those moments, what's the solution? Like say my husband gets home, he's angry from whatever. I know that the pain is his pain, but how do I hold space for that rather than taking it on as my own?
1: Such a good question because there are so many ways,
2: so many things to look at. It's it's the most beautiful thing in the world. So let's start with this.
1: My husband comes home, he's in pain. He's had that pained look on his face for
2: thousands of years. At least that's what it feels like. (laughs) And So what do I want to do? I want to fix him. I don't want him to look like that. Not because
1: I think it's not good for him to look like that, but because it makes me feel bad. So, I want to fix you because I want to feel good. I don't want to feel what you, in quotes, are making me feel. You are not making me feel anything. You are showing me a feeling that's already in me that I should be thanking you for showing me because as long as that feeling and its nature remains concealed in me it can't heal love thine enemies said christ why because when we start to understand that without you showing me myself myself will remain myself blaming you i want to fix you now have you ever fixed your
0: husband no although i'd like to think i did but no
1: all of us understand that, too. Trying to fix somebody, does that. it actually locks them into the very thing that we want to change. Why? Because you come at me and you tell me, you know, guy, why do you have to talk like this? You're always yada, yada, yada. And when you say that to me, I don't go, gee, you know what? You might be right. I never thought of it that I might break somebody's ear with everything that I know and but i don't think to myself that what do i think what's wrong with you
2: what's your problem melissa well, why are you coming at me right now so can i see what is a fault in me if someone is trying to make me see it or do i go blind the minute that you come at me, which is Yeah, instantaneous blindness. It's called second force in my work. I instantaneously resist you. And resistance cannot learn.
1: So that the moment that you produce in me this resistance, which you're not even actually producing it, but you're bringing up this knee-jerk rejection of any suggestion that I'm not perfect. (laughs) So if I... Now, the next thing we have to ask ourselves is, well, let's see now, that's never changed him, but when did I change? Because my wife told me that I was impatient. My husband told me that I could be cruel. And when they said that, I, no way. I'm not impatient. I just know everything.
2: I'm not cruel. I just want what's best for you. And then one day, because we've asked, I see it's true. I actually see, maybe because I see your face one day that I never saw
1: before. Holy cow. I didn't mean to hurt you. I I didn't mean to do the evil. I didn't want to. I wanted to do the good, but I didn't. Why? Because I never knew in me was this impatience. Because it never called itself that. It called itself all-knowing. I never saw cruelty in me. It called itself trying to make you a better person, pointing out your faults. So in that moment, when I see myself as I am, I can no longer remain that man or woman. Not because you asked me to change, but because love showed me what was no longer loving and necessary in my life. So that's the first step. We have to give our partner room to see themselves. Now the second part that you asked me, this is where the rubber meets
2: the road. I call truth a full contact sport, Melissa. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know the ancient meaning of the word patience? Yeah. To suffer myself. Yeah. In your patience possess ye your soul. Right
1: out of the scripture. Wow. Patient. Well, that would make a lot of sense because it's my impatience that tries to fix you. It's my insistence there's something you've done making me feel this angst. But now I understand, to some degree, this is a work of a lifetime, that you are not really making me feel this You are showing me a consciousness, a level of self I didn't know was in me. And for the revelation, I must now accept the realization. But to accept the realization, I have to sit there and be more interested in witnessing what's unfolding than I am in trying to control what's unfolding. Because the value here is that love has brought us together So that through each other, we may not only perfect love, but perfect love through the revelation of those limitations standing in the way of that perfection. And every insistence, every demand, every angst, every anxiety that comes up in me that I blame on you is a limitation trying to create a moment where it doesn't have to see itself because it's blamed itself on someone outside of me.
0: So it's that shift in mindset from dictating where this is about to go or where I want it to go, to just having an awareness and curiosity of what can unfold instead. You ready? Maybe.
1: (laughs) Of laying down my own life for the sake of a love that shows me that that life must not keep going on. It is in every meaning of the word a sacrifice of self. It is in every meaning of the word the the end of one order of being and the beginning of another. It is a rebirth because I'm no longer who I was. I have to let go of what cannot be anymore, my truth. And when I die, just a little bit, everything changes. Because the whole of the dynamic of the relationship was the element of all the parts. A part's changed. I saw something I can't be anymore. I exit that moment, and maybe I finally blew up. But before I blew up, I saw the balloon. I saw the part of me puff up. And I knew that I shouldn't say the thing that I did, because I knew it would be hurtful. Why? Because I was present long enough to feel the pain of it. And then I have to gradually start seeing that. And I swear to you, Melissa, over many, many years of
2: telling you and doing what I'm saying, you begin to become a human being who can never hurt a human being. You can't do it.
1: You would literally rather die than hurt another human being. Because you see that before you can hurt someone, you are being hurt by something inside of yourself incapable of love. And if you'll excuse me, and that takes us full circle, because that's how the world changes. Not by getting someone else to see they're destroying the world, but by seeing where I've been attracted to something that's destroying me. And now I can no longer participate in it. And by law, I exit that relationship. I diminish the power that formerly held authority over me by that nth of a degree and I am liberated to begin becoming acting out what we're talking about because you and I couldn't have a deep conversation like this unless both of us to some extent understand that indeed the truth does make a man or a woman free.
0: Right. I feel really blessed because a lot of my friends look up to my husband and I and our relationship and it's something that I'm actually really proud of. But I have found that what I'm most grateful for is both of our willingness to drop the ego. And maybe not right away, especially with me, but honestly, it does get shorter and shorter every year. Now we'll get in something and within a minute, I go into the room and I say, I'm sorry, <laughs> or I was totally wrong, or that was just emotions. But The ultimate goal in any of the TIFFs isn't for one of us to prove that we were right or that we knew better. The goal is to come together in a meaningful way and have the relationship grow from that experience. And just this way, this simple way that we interact resonates through our entire relationship. But in most of my past relationships, I always felt like I was the only person that was really working on myself or the relationship. So what do you do if one person is more willing to do the work than the other, or you always feel like you're the one stepping towards the middle and your partner doesn't meet you back?
2: Love never fails, period.
1: (laughs) Now, what does that mean? Let's say I'm in a relationship and as a rule, women are far superior to men. (laughs) Let's face it. I'll take it. I mean that. By nature, and in part because of our culture, our crazy, crazy culture, women tend to have less to prove. But see, the world's getting so sick nowadays, the feminine aspect is getting obsessed with power. Love doesn't need power. Love always takes the low spot. That's what love does. That's what it does naturally. So here I am. I'm in a relationship. And let's say my wife or my husband just doesn't get it. And I banged him on the head with all my spiritual knowledge. I've acted out things that I want them to act out while inwardly I'm seething, but I'm not going to show it. And I still don't understand what's going on. But then by the grace of God, one day, I actually see what you and I have talked about. I'm on fire. I'm on fire right now. And I understand that you did not light the fire. You may have been there in the moment where an ignition took place, but can you light a fire without wood?
0: Well, I could, but it wouldn't keep a blaze very long.
1: So I see this wood in me, this unliving material, pain from my past disappointment in relationships with others. And a match is struck. Oh, I like that. I never even thought of a match like a light or a match like a couple.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a good one.
1: Yeah. A match is struck. I really like that a lot. And in that moment, I understand maybe I should just want to know a little bit more about what I am going through
2: than I want to prove to you why you're making me do that. If I change that much, it's a law of, I don't know if you know quantum physics, but the observer
1: is the observed. And if I change a little bit, so does what is observed in that moment. It may not even know it to the point, and it usually doesn't. But if I'm not the same, I give you space Be different as well. It may be a minute, but I come back with as much vehemence as I used to. I don't bring up the past the same way I pounded it in because you were always this and that and the other. Instead, there's a pause. And the pause is for perception's purpose. If I perceive myself, I'm changed by the perception. And if I'm changed, I'm giving you space that you never had before to change yourself. If that happens enough, my partner will one day see what's what's going on with Melissa. Why the heck won't she fight with me? I want to fight. She won't fight. She doesn't love me anymore. Holy cow, wait a minute. Fighting isn't loving. Fighting is the absence of love. Oh, thank God Melissa didn't fight. I couldn't understand it but now I do. She was working on herself to get rid of the anger in herself and gave me a chance to see the anger in me that I would have never seen otherwise because pain pushes pain, pushes pain, pushes pain. And now no one's pushing. Someone's just perceiving.
0: Oh, I love that. There's so much power in that pause. My friend Brisbane, Bridget always says pause when agitated and it really has made such a difference. It sounds so simple, but that pause can be the difference between an entire mood, a whole reaction, (laughs) like everything can subside in that pause.
1: Used properly. Look, you know, we grow up and mom and dad, you're upset with a kid count to 10 and most of us just to, okay, one, two, three, four, and then at 10, I'm still the same person.
0: Right. They use it to almost amplify, count down to their anger.
1: But if I pause and take 10 and use the 10 for a new revelation, then that 10 seconds changes all of time for me and everything that will happen in time afterwards.
0: Right. It's like, when we're laser focused, I think of it like our brain is running this program, the program that it always runs. And so back in episode 33, it was actually mentioned as a method to relieve anxiety. But Ashley James said that when you feel like you're in tunnel vision, just spread your arms out to the side to where you look like you're on the cross. I know that's kind of a weird reference, but, and then you point your fingers forward and wiggle them. And so You suddenly just expand your vision to where you could see your periphery. When you're in tunnel vision, you're laser focused on that argument, on that thing, and your brain is running that program. But when you can expand your attention to the periphery, suddenly you can feel everything soften and it gives you this new, softer perspective. I've been using that ever since that episode.
1: Even that disrupts the pattern because the pattern is born through resistance. Listen, everybody, please, you might want to write this down. As goes my attention, so comes my experience. As goes my attention, so comes my experience. And when you have set me off, where is my attention? My attention is on my pain, my blame, and me wanting to fix the pain in you. So all I'm attending to is pain. And if all I attend to is unconscious pain, what's my experience of the moment? Unconscious pain. So when I begin to recognize that the moment I can shift my attention, my experience is going to change, which is what you just described through that little idea, then I get it. Why would I give my attention to something the more I give it to it, the deeper I get dragged into it? Because I didn't know that's what was happening, because something was telling me, by fixing my attention on you, I'll fix you, because I'm going to find the right thing to say. I'm going to show you the right posture. I'm going to give you the cold shoulder. You're going to get that glare, and through my negativity, you're going to learn to be a positive human being. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Touche. It's that moment of choice to let your higher self override your small self. And I've been there because you almost feel like, well, how is this person going to ever learn their lesson if I let this slide? (laughs) But that type of teaching doesn't work. You can't attract positivity with negativity. So I loved the way you word that. And I know I've been going through your book and you share some amazing practices for how to learn to leave space for your partner. So I'd love to leave listeners with some of those action items.
1: Certainly. Remembering as we go
2: through this, that the key here has to be a wish on my part to have a new relationship with my partner based
1: on a new understanding of myself. Not a new relationship with my partner because I got him to understand, but a new relationship because I want to understand what is the real purpose of this relationship. So that's important because that's where the word patience
2: comes in. We don't know, Melissa, what to do with our pain. Honest to God, that no one's taught us, no one knows that this is on the spot, is a byproduct
1: of a level of our own being that never understood how to use the moment when it unfolded. Because as we've just described, when the moment comes and you upset me, I don't use it as a moment of revelation. I use it as a moment to prove your limitation.
2: So we're going to work at one thing only, one little practice. And we'll build on what you said. You said when you get
1: upset, you you can see that your focus, your attention, gets narrower and narrower and narrower, and now if I may, the more narrow it gets, the more certain I become so that my mind doesn't get slower, my mind gets faster, thoughts come more quickly, the, the pressure builds, and then I pop. <laughs> <laughs> pop goes the evil. <laughs> so what we want to do now is just have one understanding between us. If I'm angry at something, can I see myself the way I am? Or is anger a blinding force?
0: Oh, it's blinding.
1: Yeah. If I'm angry, I'm blind. Pure and simple. No other way out. Doesn't matter what has done, whatever I blame that on. If I get angry, I'm blind. If I'm blind, can I see anything other than What my nature that blinded me is showing me, or is that it? The sum of possibilities in the moment when I'm angry is to see what validates the anger and makes a victim of everyone around me, including myself. Yes or no?
0: Yes. Wow, that was perfectly worded.
1: (laughs) So it isn't that I'm not going to get angry. That's a fool's game. Look at all these pseudo-mystics, pseudo-spiritual teachers, gurus, pseudo-aspirants, walking around with that dumb smiley face where everything's copacetic and inwardly I'm seething. No, we're going to recognize that moments can produce this seething in us. But by understanding that I don't say I to it, if I don't identify with it, then in that split second, I will know at last that anger is not I. It is not me. It always dragged me into its world, its perception, its plan, and its punishments. But I am not that anger, but I never knew it because I was always instantaneously drawn into the momentum of that focus. So. We aren't saying don't get angry. We're saying the next time we get angry, let us have a new intention in the onset of that stress. The new intention is to be the observer of my own life and not the instrument of an anger that steals my life. If I can just bring this little bit of truth into the moment with me, because I want to, I don't want to be angry. Nobody wants to be angry <laughs> if they do their
2: damage beyond repair. Love doesn't get angry. You remember when you were growing? because you're kind of still a, a bambino. When I was growing up, I remember very clearly.
1: I'd come home and I'd done something wrong, and my parents would punish me. They'd be angry. And they would tell me in the midst of their anger, they're only angry because they love me. You see, in the world that makes sense, because that's all they know to do with their fear. They feared for me because they're attached to me. Out of their attachment to me, they fear that they would lose part of themselves if they lost me, which they would in one respect. But fear doesn't know anything about love. Fear is the antithesis of love. So we're going full circle here to recognize if I'm negative, it might be telling me it's because I love somebody. But it's not because I love them. It's because something in me loves what it loves and wants to keep me a captive of that level of consciousness. And I just have to recognize that. And if I do even a little bit, boom, light has come in. Just a small beck of awareness changes the whole nature that was unaware of itself. And I essentially come out from amongst them. I essentially come out from all those thoughts, all those negative feelings. And I have a blessed moment of being able to see for the first time that what I used to call wheat was really chaff. Uh,
0: I love what I do. <laughs> I just get all these yeah. hours of deep knowledge from people like you. It's so perfect. (laughs) Thank you.
1: (laughs) I do too. That's what love is. We don't know each other, but we're sharing love. Love brought us together. You can't explain that, but you can't deny it. That love is everywhere all the time, but we're not there everywhere all the time.
0: Well, for listeners who are interested in Experiencing more of your love because I know you have a ton of videos and blogs and just a lot of great content online. Where is the best place to connect with you?
1: RelationshipMagicBook.com. RelationshipMagicBook.com. If you go there, there's a link and it'll take you to a couple of the bigger uh, major retailers. You get the book through the retailer, then instantaneously you get to download the audiobook that I read, you get a free three hour webinar that's recorded on relationship magic, and you get a 60 minute MP3 on seven ways that we can learn to love each other in a higher, truer way. So relationshipmagicbook.com and you get those gifts. If you don't wanna buy through a retailer like that, any receipt that you have for the book, you can put the number on that deal, on that page, and it'll still link you. And if you don't want to buy the book, you just want to know more, go to GuyFinley.org. G-U-Y-F-I-N-L-E-Y, GuyFinley.org. And you can visit that website for three years and never download all the stuff that's on it.
0: I hope you all loved this interview as much as I did. It just makes me feel so renewed. It's interesting how everything always seems to come back to ourselves, no matter what it is. The more you blame, the more you pull the victim card, the less control you ultimately have. And it's not just a way to look at the world. It is how things are. Everything comes back to you because it's your perception, it's your experience, and ultimately, it's your growth. We already went over, so I'll wrap this up pretty quickly, but all of the links in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 060. You can support this show by supporting some of our amazing sponsors. I love them all. I believe in them all. And they're all just amazing companies. If you're enjoying Mind Love, please tell someone about it. Share it. That's how this show grows. Tell a friend, a family member, or coworker. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Also, for some extra inspiration between episodes, don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com. Or text morning to 444 999. And you can always visit me on social at Mind Love Podcast. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.